to continue our study through the book of Genesis. Uh, by the way, um, I've been informed that we are up to date as far as our sermons being downloaded online. Uh, so, just so you're aware, um, if you've missed one in the past and uh, I saw Judy grabbing some CDs, you're more than welcome to grab CDs, but another option uh, is to check those sermons out online, uh, which is very convenient for me, less mailing. Um, awesome. So today, tonight, we'll be in Genesis chapter 29. We'll get through the entire chapter before we discuss title and text. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word, God. You are the word, Jesus, and we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, personally uh, and as a body, as a whole, as a group, God. Um, pray that you would use this story to minister to our hearts, and though it happened so long ago, there's a truth to the word that it is living and powerful, and it applies to us today, God. So I pray that you would relate it to each of us in your name. Amen. All right. So, um, last few weeks, just to catch you up, uh, in Genesis chapter 27, we talked about this fleshly family, right? We talked about how the whole family, uh, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, Isaac, how they all acted out in their flesh. They weren't leaning on what God said, how the uh, younger, um, or sorry, the older shall serve the younger, and everybody took matters into their own hands. Uh, we see how that caused a lot of problems in Genesis chapter 27. And uh, we finished Genesis chapter 27 and 28 last week. Remember Esau, he wanted to kill Jacob because Jacob stole his birthright. Even though technically Esau had given it to him previously. But we talked about this fleshly family. Then we began to talk about this journey that Jacob uh, found himself on. His mom sent him out because she was afraid that Esau was going to kill him. And though she may have jumped the gun on this decision, we see that God made all things work together for good. And God encountered Jacob. And God made some specific promises to Jacob to essentially carry him through this journey. Okay, And we'll be in this story or this account of Jacob in the next several chapters. So the story continues. In this specific chapter, we're going to see two main topics um, or situations that Jacob uh, encounters. And these two topics, what we see that Jacob finds is both love, he's going to find love, and he's also going to find himself being deceived because God's trying to teach him a very valuable lesson and purge him of a specific character, character quality that he's known for. So that brings me to the title of this teaching, simply Love and Deception. Love and deception. In Genesis chapter 29, 
verse 1, says, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So Jacob, he left from Beersheba, he met God at Bethel, and he continues on his journey. Jersey, Jersey. <laughs> I don't even know where that came from. Just watching a lot of football, I guess. So Jacob went on, this word went, literally means he lifted up his feet. The implication here is that he was a little more light-footed when you look at the original language. And this would make sense. He's a little more light-footed. He's a little less burdened after what? After his encounter with the Lord, right? The Lord met him where he was at and he gave him some specific promises. Now, Jacob is more light-footed. He has more confidence to move forward in the journey that God's called him on. Why? Because now he has an opportunity to rest in God's promises. And remember, one of the first things that God told him was that he was going to be with him. He also told him that he was going to keep him. He also told him that he was going to bring him back to this land. So essentially, God says, hey, I got you in all aspects on this journey. So, of course, Jacob's a little like, all right, yeah, I'm good. I'm light footed. I'm light on my feet. I'm able to pursue this journey without being burdened from all these mistakes that I've made in my past and the deceit that I've walked in thus far. See, we're all called on a journey, right? We're all called on this journey called life. And the only way we're going to experience the fullness of this journey called life is if we rest in God's promises. We're going to see in the story that Jacob, sometimes he does rest in God's promises and sometimes he doesn't rest in God's promises. And when he doesn't, it often gets him in trouble. Let's look what happens. Genesis chapter 29, verse 2. And he looked and saw a well in the field and behold, there were three flocks of sheep living by it. For out of that well... They watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. So due to the dry air and the climate of that region of that area, there's lots of desert land. So when they had a well so that the water wouldn't evaporate, they'd often put a big stone over the well so that the water wouldn't evaporate and be gone before daylight. So the stone that they would place there... As such, this story talks about this stone was often very big and it would take several men to move this stone. Important to the story, picking it back up in Genesis chapter 29, verse 3. So he gets to this place, to the people of the east. Now all the flocks would be gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth. Water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. This must have been really exciting and relieving for Jacob. Why? Because it's not like 
Jacob has GPS, okay? It's not like he has all these sophisticated ways to know where he's going. He's simply walking in a direction and he's hoping that he gets to the right place. The only way he's able to know for sure is by communicating with the local people. And this journey, this isn't like a small distance from Beersheba where he started to Haran. It's about 450 miles, So think about that. Think about walking for 450 miles. This would have taken a long time. And because God had favor on Jacob, he guided him somehow, some way to the right place. So Jacob says, hey, are you my brethren? My brethren, where are you from? And they say, we are from Haran. Picking it up in verse 5. says, then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go feed them. Basically, Jacob's trying to get the men to go off and take care of the cattle so he can engage with Rachel. Look what happens in verse 8. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So you got these few shepherd boys, they're probably younger men, and they're like, oh, we need to wait for more people to come so that we can move this stone and then we'll water the sheep and they're getting in line so that they can water their sheep first. That's pretty much how it would work. Now what Jacob does, he sees Rachel, this beautiful shepherdess, knowing that she's a daughter of Laban. And remember, this is the reason why he's headed to Haran, right? Because his parents didn't want him to marry a Canaanite woman. So this is the point of his journey to travel to this place to find a daughter of Laban so he might marry her. So he sees Rachel coming up and what does he do? He so bravely and strongly moves this stone by himself. What's he doing? He's trying to woo her, right? He's like, man, I want the first thing that she sees me doing is moving this stone that these three shepherd boys couldn't move by themselves. I want to show off my might. You guys ever do this? You ever do this to your woman? Maybe you did this to your wife when you were younger, when you first met? Think about it. Maybe you did things to show her how smart you were, how funny you were, how strong you were. Think about the ridiculous things that you've done to woo your wife or your girlfriend. Probably some pretty ridiculous stuff, right? There were times that, I won't tell you really embarrassing stuff, I'll tell you one that doesn't make me look too bad. Um, 
So when I first became interested in Elizabeth, we were working in Patmos together and I was teaching Jewish history on Wednesday nights. So I would study and study and study and I'd talk to her about all these things that I was learning. And I'd actually have her make PowerPoints for my teachings way back then. It started then. She still does it today. Praise God. But I would talk to her about all this stuff that I was learning. And yes, I like to talk about the stuff that I'm learning, but I had like an ulterior motive. I wanted her to realize how much of the Bible and Jewish Jewish history I knew. I wanted her to look at me as like a knowledgeable, godly man. And you know what? It worked. But in all sincerity, we do this as men. We try to woo our significant other. That's what Jacob's doing. I want her to see how strong I am. I'm going to move this stone by myself so that when she comes, that's the first encounter that she has with me. And she says, look at this strong man. He can do what other men can't do. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 29, verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel pretty confident, and lifted up his voice and wept. This word wept literally means he sobbed or wailed. Now, I don't think he's he's crying because he's sad. This is probably a, oh my gosh, this woman, she's so beautiful. This creature, she's so amazing. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. She watched me do this thing. I kissed her. He's in the moment and he's emotional. He's excited. He believes that he's found the reason and purpose for his journey. And right off the bat, he meets this woman, this beautiful girl, Rachel, at this well. And he (laughs) weeps. Picking it up in verse 12. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. So Laban hasn't met Jacob before this point, okay? And we see here that Jacob, sorry, that Laban is super excited to meet Jacob. Why? Well, We know he's a family member, and that's probably part of it. But when we look at the history and character of Laban, there's probably an ulterior motive here as well, right? What happened last time when Abraham's servant came to the same area, Haran, to meet this same family? When Laban saw him, he was excited. And then when he saw the jewelry that was given to Rebekah, what happened? He got even more excited. And he says all these edifying things to the servant to build him up. Hey man, we're going to take care of you. You're from the Lord. We know it. Come into our house. We have all this this stuff set up for you. He's extra hospitable when what? When he knows he's going to get something out of the situation. Now, this is the same family and he knows this family is very wealthy. So he likely likely is excited because he probably believes he's going to get something out of this situation. Picking it up in verse 14. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. 
This is an interesting statement. Yes, it's true that Laban and Jacob are of the same bone, are of the same flesh, genetically, right? They're of the same family. But this is even more interesting because they're very similar when you look at their characteristics. They're both very deceitful and manipulative and will basically run people over to get what they want. Look what happens, picking it up in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what should your wages be? Now, it was uh, common in that culture for someone to come and hospitality is a huge thing uh, in Middle Eastern culture in general for you to welcome them in your home, uh, give them food to eat, let them stay for about three or four days. But after a few days, there was the expectation that that person would begin to work. So that's what happens here. Jacob starts working for Laban and now he's been working for a month. Laban probably sees the kind of work ethic that Jacob has, also knowing that he comes from a wealthy family. And he says, hey, I want you to stick around a little longer. What is it going to cost you or what is it going to cost me to have you stick around for a little while longer? So he puts it back on Jacob. Look what Jacob says in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now there's a lot of speculation about what this exactly means. Leah's eyes were delicate. Um, Some say that maybe she had blue eyes, which was different than the common people of that day who had brown eyes. Some say maybe she had bad eyes, regardless of what was going on with her eyes. We know one thing, that Jacob thought that Rachel was better looking. She was more attractive in appearance, beautiful of form and appearance, it says there. Picking it up in verse 18. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So essentially what Jacob is doing now, it doesn't seem that he brought anything with him, such as like a lot of finances or all these different things. Uh, Rebecca was trying to get him out of the house quickly because Esau was out to kill him uh, once Isaac passed away. Now, what Jacob is doing is instead of paying a dowry, which was basically a down payment to marry a woman, it was a sign to say, hey, I will be able to provide for your daughter financially. So what Jacob does instead is, hey, I'll work for it. I'll show you by my work ethic that I'm going to be able to provide for your daughter. And he says, I'll work for seven years, which was a very long time to prove his point. That was a lot of work, even for a dowry. But I love this. He says he'll work for for him for seven years. I think we should still do this. I think we should do this today. Any fathers that have daughters... 
you should point those young men that are seeking your daughters out. Hey, this is what the Bible teaches. If you're willing to work for me for seven years, then I will allow you to marry my daughter. That would be interesting. That'd be weird. Your daughter would probably hate you. Um, but in all sincerity, I think there's something so valuable to this. Why? Because love takes work, which brings me to the first of four. Love takes work. I think that working for a long time to get what you think you want really puts things into perspective, right? It makes you consider whether you truly want it or not. It would help you determine whether your feelings were based on lust or if they were truly rooted in love. See, love lasts, but lust is temporary. And I'm sure that after seven years, you would figure out whether this was just a lust thing. I'm sure Jacob, if after even a few months, you know what, this really isn't worth it. I thought she was great in the beginning, but no, I'm out. No, it put things in perspective for Jacob. He had such a long time to truly consider whether this was something that he wanted or not. And I'm sure that this also would have taught Jacob to appreciate Rachel even more. Think about the time and effort he would have had to put into this thing. He would have not only known that he loved her, but he also would have appreciated her so much more because he put so much time into paying this price so that he could get her. See, we appreciate things a lot more when we work for them, right? I mean, we do appreciate God's blessings and we do appreciate gifts and we do appreciate all these different things, but there's something too when we work for something, we do appreciate it more. And God, like he does with Jacob, he challenges Jacob to make sure that he understands what he's getting into to make sure that he will appreciate this marriage. Has God ever walked you? Did he walk you? Sorry, those of you that are married. Did he walk you through a difficult time period before you got married or was it easy? I don't know. I don't know what your personal story was for me. God walked me through quite a a bit of difficulty before I was able to marry my wife. Why? He was making sure that I knew what I wanted. He was making sure that I actually appreciated this thing and I wasn't just jumping the gun and giving into feelings and emotions. You know what? For the first nine months that Elizabeth and I were interested in each other, we couldn't talk about it. We couldn't really pursue a relationship because of our circumstances and what we were doing at the time. And then right after that nine months was over and I said, all right, yes, I definitely want to pursue this thing. She tells me I'm going to Africa for three months. It's like, are you serious? You're going to Africa. All right. So while she's in Africa, I find out I'm going to El Salvador right when she gets back. Literally, she gets back a week later. I'm in El Salvador for four months. Like, you got to be kidding me. She got to visit me for 10 days. And you know what it did to me? It made me really consider this. Man, this is not easy. This is taking a lot of work. This is really painful. I'm separated from her constantly. Of course, the questions came up. If God's separating us countries apart, does he even want us to be together? 
But I knew the Lord did want us to be together and I knew he was challenging me in the way that I needed. And one of the ways that he was challenging me was to allow me to learn how much work it was going to take to make marriage work. Because yes, marriage is rooted in love, but that love, it takes work. And then that December, we ended up getting engaged, got married that June. And you know what? The Lord, I'm so grateful for that time period, even though I hated it. It really put marriage into perspective because marriage does require work. It requires effort. It requires energy. It requires time and effort to reconcile. It takes time and effort and energy to to um, get over issues or work through problems. That's not something that just happens. It's something that takes effort. It takes effort to make the marriage interesting. It takes effort to continue to build that passion and that desire for one another because we're creatures of habit and we get comfortable with how things always are and we get complacent in our marriages and relationships in general. But it takes effort to spice it up, right? It takes a little effort to say, hey, no, 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 let's do something different. Let's do something exciting. It takes date nights. It takes all these different things and keeping it fresh, keeping it exciting. That takes work. It's not some type of fairy tale movie where everything just works out all the time and you fall in love and those, those feelings are just there forever. Yes, the feelings might be, but there's something we're called to do with them. And love, as we've talked about many times before, love is an action. It's not just a feeling. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Paul, again, he explains what love does to keep that fire of love going. It takes effort. It takes action. And I believe God, he's using these seven years to prepare Jacob for marriage because marriage, it's going to take some work. Love, it takes work. Picking it up in verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. How many of you Husbands have sent this verse to your wife at some point in your life. Probably many, some. This is a verse that I think all couples, we absolutely love. This is just so inspiring, the passion here. But I think there's an important biblical principle that we can pull from this. Which brings me to the second point. Love makes work, not seem like work. Love makes work not seem like work. When we're that in love with someone else, working doesn't seem like working. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ, the love of Jesus compels us. It motivates us. When we're compelled by love, then work is something we want to do and not something that we have to do. Love is, work is something that we look forward to and not something that we dread. If we're weighed down and burdened by work, then we're probably not doing it in love. Now you might say, well, I work every day. 
And I'm not compelled or motivated by love. I'm working for my secular boss. And you know what? Frankly, I don't love him or I don't love her. I'm not really motivated by my love towards that person to work any harder. But let me remind you that you're not really working for your boss. You're working for the boss. You're working for Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, that we're to do everything unto the Lord. Everything. So that means children doing your chores, not just for your parents, but as unto the Lord. And that means for us doing those jobs or redoing those jobs over and over again or doing the jobs that we hate. We're not doing that for our boss that's like a dictator tyrant. No, we're doing that for Jesus. We're doing that as unto the Lord. It doesn't matter if our boss is watching or if we get the approval of our earthly boss. It's all about pleasing our heavenly father. It's all about doing what would honor and please the Lord. When we look at doing everything as unto the Lord, then work doesn't really seem like work anymore. And it really goes by quickly. You know that saying time flies when you're having fun. Time flies when you're working unto the Lord. Because there should be a joy that comes from that. There should be fun that comes from that, right? Literally, when we're focused on, on serving the Lord, when we're focused on our love for God and everything that we do, and everything we do, we're doing it as unto the Lord. Time flies by, right? It does. Please tell me yes, because I'm expecting that you guys are doing this. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. Time is like, as you're speaking up here, I'm like counting the seconds and it is not going by fast. Unto the Lord, even right now, as you study the word. Genesis chapter 29, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban... And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob is simply getting a taste of his own medicine, which brings me to the third point, what you sow, you will reap. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, says just that, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Some people in this world call it karma. Okay? Now, it's not karma. It's not karma. Okay? That's a Hinduism, Buddhism belief. Karma, when you really consider it, when you really think about it, karma is a very cruel concept. Why? Well, basically, the belief of karma is... Yeah, kind of you uh, will reap 
what you sow, but it doesn't just pertain to this life. It's an eternal concept. So if you have a horrible life here and you've been abused and you've been talked down to, verbally abused, physically abused, you've had the worst life ever here. You deserved it. Maybe not because of something you did in this life, but it's something that you did in another life. So anything that you've ever done, whether this life or all your other lives before, you're basically just getting what you deserve. That means that you did that to somebody else. And so you're under the assumption constantly that what happens to you in this life, you've done that to somebody else in your previous life, whether it was while you were a cockroach or a bird or a person or whatever it may be. It's an extremely cruel concept. So the things that are happening to you, you're constantly blaming yourself. I did something bad to someone else. So now this thing is happening to me. Now, Part of this is somewhat true, but it's not the concept of karma that's true. It's not that karma is in control and the energies of the universe are in control of what happens to you in your life. God's in control. God controls these things. See, a man will sow what he reaps, but sometimes, sometimes God's grace is so much greater than that and he doesn't always give you what you deserve, right? That's what the gospel is. If we completely sowed what we reaped, then we'd all be burning in hell eventually. So this concept is true in certain circumstances, and it definitely is true in um, Jacob's circumstance, but it's different than what we think. See, we can look at this concept. A man will reap what he sows and look at the negative, but it's not this karma type ideal. It's a loving father teaching his children to do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. It's a way that God teaches us. It's not him technically punishing us. It's God disciplining us. It's God trying to teach us. See, God's allowing this situation to happen. Not that he made Laban do this, but he's allowing this situation to happen in Jacob's life to purge him of deception. He says, then why then have you deceived me? Jacob's simply reaping what he sowed. He sowed deception, right? He deceived his father. He deceived his brother. And now he's reaping what he sowed. This isn't like God trying to get back at Jacob. No, this is a good father trying to teach his son, hey, this is wrong. And I want you to change. Because so often we'll fall into the same sin over and over and over again. Or we'll sin against someone over and over and over again until what? We get a taste of our own medicine and we realize the pain of that sin and how it hurts someone else and now how it hurts me and now we have a different perspective. Oh my, hey, that doesn't feel so good when I steal from someone else. That doesn't feel so good when, or sorry, when someone else steals from me or that doesn't feel so good when someone does this specific thing to me. So often God will allow people to sin against you and the same sins that you sin against him to purge you from that specific sin it's a tool to teach us as a good father does it's not a the wrath of god or the judgment of god coming upon us it's truly rooted in love in genesis chapter 29 verse 26 later on we'll see that 
Jacob didn't get the message. Um, That'll be next week. And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, this probably hit home for Jacob. Why? Because Jacob deceived his father into blessing him, the one that was born second, to bless him over the one that was born first in Esau. See, I wonder if God is trying to bring Jacob back to this specific moment, back to this specific situation. Because we'll see later on in the story of Jacob, God does say some strategic words to bring him back to the root of his deceit when his deceit first started in that story where he deceived his father. And when his father asked him, are you Esau and he said yes God brings him back to that point so it's so interesting that through Jacob's story God keeps trying to bring him back to that moment even through Laban even using this corrupt man in this little phrase that he says in our culture you're supposed to bless the firstborn first Jacob is likely thinking oh my gosh I know that's what's acceptable in culture, but I deceived my father and all these different things started happening. Now, through this statement, Laban is really answering his question. Remember what he asked? Look what he says here. Why then have you deceived me? The reason he deceived him in the sovereignty of God, when you look at it that way, the reason that he deceived him was because Jacob deceived his father. He's really kind of in this creative way answering his own question. Picking it up in verse 27. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him the daughter, Rachel, as wife also. So Laban says, fulfill her week. What week is he talking about? Traditionally, they had a uh, a week-long festival to solidify the wedding. So what Laban is saying, hey, don't bail out right now. Fulfill her week because I need to have Leah married. And then after this week is over, then you can enter into marriage with Rachel. But once you enter into marriage with Rachel, I'm still going to need you to work another seven years to essentially pay the dowry to be able to marry her. Verse 29, And Laban gave his maid Bila to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. So there it is. We see that he went into Rachel. He married Rachel and then he served Laban another seven years. So he didn't have to serve the other seven years before he got Rachel, but he had to serve that seven years to solidify the dowry or the payment that needed to be paid to Laban to make that um, wedding or marriage official. Picking it up in verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So we see here 
In other translations, it says not just unloved, but hated. Now, it says that Jacob, in verse 30, loved Rachel more than Leah, but he also had this unlove, in other words, a hate or resentment towards Leah. But even though Jacob didn't love Leah, God still loved her. And there's a valuable lesson that God's trying to get across to Leah, even through the births of her sons that she has after that. Which brings me to the fourth point. God's love is all we need. God's love is all we need. People will hate us sometimes. People will love us other times. People will like us. People will despise us. But God will always consistently love us and wants us all the times. So not sometimes, all the time. Ladies, if there are any of you that are single here, maybe a few, okay? Most are married. Some are single. Don't seek a man to fill the void that only God can. And all the same thing goes for men. Men don't seek a woman to fill the void that only God can. We're going to see here that Leah is constantly trying to fill this void by being accepted by her husband. And she thinks she has to do all these different things so her husband would just love her. But from the very beginning, it says that God opened her womb because he loved. And that's the love that ultimately matters. Look what happens. Verse 32. So Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Again, she's trying to earn her husband's love. She's thinking, well, if I just have children, specifically if I have male children then my husband, he's going to love me. If you feel like you have to earn your man's love, then you're with the wrong man. If your man doesn't love you for who you truly are, then you're with the wrong man. Now, I'm not saying wives that are married to your husbands, you should leave them, okay? I'm not condoning divorce here. But those who are maybe engaged in a relationship or considering it or on the fence or preparing for that later down the road, if you feel that you need to earn someone else's love, if they don't love you for who you are and you feel like you have to work to earn it, you're with the wrong person. If they feel like, if they make you feel like you have to do things to earn their love, then you might want to get rid of them and start looking for someone else. Or just give them this sermon and tell them they need to change. (laughs) Picking it up in verse 33. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Leah is essentially saying, Hey, The Lord has heard my prayer that I'm unloved. This is her assumption. 
God has heard my prayer that I'm unloved, so she's providing for me another son. Maybe two sons will do it. He's providing for me another son. And now with the second son, now my husband will love me. I believe that God is answering her prayer, but not in the way that she thinks. See, it's God that opened her womb. I believe what God is trying to teach Leah in this situation is that thing that we just talked about, that God's love is the love that matters. Regardless of you being unloved by your husband, you're loved by me. I'm answering your prayer and I'm trying to get this message across to you that you're never going to be satisfied with the love from your husband if you're not satisfied with the love that comes from me. Pick it up in verse 34. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Levi, it means attached. He's thinking, third time's a charm, right? If I have three sons, come on, he's going to be attached to me. He's going to be connected to me. I just know it. Is it going to happen? No. Sadly, she'll be disappointed once again because she, she's searching for love in literally all the wrong places. Now, her husband should love her, right? But she's seeking so much love for her from her husband when she's not recognizing that her true husband, God, loves her so much. And that's why he's blessing her with these children. Verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing Judah. It actually means praise. And I think when you look at the text here, Leah's finally starting to get it. Now, she's not perfect. And we see she does some other things because she's constantly battling against Rachel and who's the favorite wife in the next chapter. They start giving over their servants and all these different things. But look at this verse. This is the one verse through this section that her husband isn't mentioned. Jacob's not mentioned in this verse. And what is she called this son? She calls him Judah, which means praise. She's praising God. I'm going to praise God for who he is and for what he's done and how he's loved me. My husband, he's not mentioned in this one. Why? Because I recognize who my true husband is. And I'm going to praise God because of the love that he has for me. I need no love from no other other than God. It's God's love that matters. I begin, I I think that Leah, she's beginning to get the lesson here that we all need to know and be reminded of. So often we seek uh, love and affection from people, and that's not a bad thing. But we can get so focused on pleasing our wife or our husband or our girlfriend or our boyfriend or that person that we like that we forget what's really important. See, if we're not purposing to please God, if we're not abiding in his love for us, you've heard it said probably many ways at different times that if we're not doing the vertical relationship right, then we're not going to do the horizontal relationships right. And this is the lesson that he's trying to get across to Leah. This is the lesson that he's trying to get across to us. This message of love, the love that truly matters will never be content in this world, no matter who we're with, 
husband, wife, children, whatever, will never be content with any other love until we find our contentment in God's love alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for this story and how you hammer home this message of love, God. Love between uh, married couples, Lord, but more importantly, love um, between us and you, God. I'm sure this was a painful lesson for Leah, always wanting to be loved by her husband and never getting what she thinks she thought she needed. God, but you, you taught her what she truly needed. And we see she praised you because of it, God. I pray that we would be people that are content with your love for us, that we don't search for love in, in the wrong places or even in the right places, but we would search it out in you, God. And through that love-based relationship with you, Lord, you would teach us how to, to love our, our spouses, our, our, our significant others, our children, our family members, our friends. Lord, because you're the definition of love. God, you are love. So we thank you for that in your name. Amen.